On May the 14th, 1973, François Truffaut's Day for Night received its world premiere at the 26th Cannes Film Festival. Screening out of competition, it received no awards, but it was soon honoured with an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, a BAFTA for Best Film, as well as a Golden Globe nomination and several critics' awards. Truffaut's 13th film, Day for Night, centres around the trials, tribulations and trivial traumas that beset a celebrated director undertaking his latest production. So, it is a film about making a film. Stated like that, the plot is not all that new. Truffaut was a voracious reader and was familiar with the way writers wrote stories about writing stories, a subgenre of growing interest for authors down through the centuries. From Scheherazade's 1001 Nights, Cervantes' Don Quixote, Lawrence Stern's The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, and Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre, along to Herman Melville's Moby Dick, James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, and Vladimir Nabokov's Lolita. More recently, Ian McEwan's Atonement attests to the theme being a growing topic. And that is not to mention a trio of novels by Stephen King. Oh, come on, hon. Don't be so grouchy. I'm not being grouchy. I just want to finish my work. I'll tell you what. It, it doesn't ever have to be published. No one ever has to read it. I'll just keep it for myself. No one will even know it exists. So, what's he going to write next? He's going to write me a nice big check if he wants me to keep my mouth shut about this. And if he doesn't want? What if he doesn't care what you do? It is a preoccupation amongst filmmakers as well. The most celebrated example being Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half. But where Fellini is said to have made a film about not being able to make a film, Truffaut chose instead to offer up a love letter to an art form without which he felt his life would make no sense. Beginning with The 400 Blows, his debut feature, Five of his films follow Antoine Duanel, a thinly disguised version of Truffaut himself, played over the course of 20 years by the same actor Jean-Pierre Léo. Here is Truffaut's daughter Laura speaking to the BBC in 1996. He told me in so many words that when he was a child he suffered so much from the lack of presence of his family there, total lack of interest in, in him, that he made film his family, he made cinema his roots, and that he, it had helped him greatly, but he had also, to some extent, he had lived to regret it. Truffaut burst onto the scene in 1959, which meant that by the time he made Day for Night in 1973, he had been for over a decade one of cinema's most revered artists. But even then, he stood apart from them in that his reputation came before he had ever shot a single frame of film. Truffaut was born on February the 6th, 1932 in Paris, not yet 40 years after that same city saw the birth of cinema itself. A difficult childhood led him to cinema, and such was his obsession with it, that in the early 50s he spent months on end at the Cinémathèque Française, watching films, old films, new films, French films, foreign language films, every kind of film available. He didn't just watch them, he studied them over and over and over until the plots dissolved and he absorbed the framing, the lighting, the editing, identifying the poetry within them. Which is how, in January 1954, at the incredulously young age of 21, Truffaut's self-education enabled him to pen an essay, 
a certain tendency in French cinema that created such a seismic shift in how a film was expressed and understood, its resonance are still deeply and widely felt to this day. Until then, film was considered the creation of a team of people. Truffaut upended that notion. Published in Cahiers du Cinema, a certain tendency passionately argued that a director is not just the driving force behind the film, but so singular and strong can be his or her vision that a film is not just a reflection of how they see the world, but also an extension of their personalities. To understand how visionary Truffaut was, back in 1954, one of the directors he championed, Alfred Hitchcock, was regarded as nothing more than a purveyor of suspense. Good evening. That's funny. That plane's dust and props where there ain't no props. Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. He went out several times last night in the rain carrying his sample case. Cities are full of women, middle-aged, widows, husbands dead. My name's Iris Henderson. I'm going home to be married. What are the 39 steps? These hands will bring you great fame. You want a leg or a breast? Want to hear one of my ideas for a perfect murder? But Truffaut's essay impacted in another way. When he wrote his essay, either corporate or state-sponsored, the studio system was the dominant mode of production in industries right across the globe. And because of that, the studio's collective machinery was regarded as the very centre of the art form. Truffaut's thesis tore out the studio collective and in its place positioned the individual at the heart of creativity. In other words, his theory is a romantic one. Yet inadvertently, the very fact that Truffaut was a critic and was thus presenting himself as the interpreter of a director's work, he positioned the critic between the film and the audience. In other words, no sooner had he championed the individual as the creator of the film, Truffaut indicated that the author is not the one to determine the meaning of a film. And thus, the cult of the film critic was born. Yes, there were some prominent critics before Truffaut. In France, there was André Bazin and Alexander Astruc. And in America, you had Bosley Crowther and James Aggie. But in general, Cahiers du Cinéma, and in particular, Truffaut's essay, changed the role and perception of the critic. And since then, in the English language, we have had superstar critics, whose opinions were almost as important to some readers as the films they covered. Pauline Kael, Dillis Powell, Vincent Camby, Roger Ebert, Jean Siskel, Philip French, Penelope Gilliatt, Joe Morgenstern, Richard Schickel, Amy Tobin and Kenneth Turan. Throughout the 50s and 60s and on into the 70s, as cinema became the focus of increased intellectual analysis, so too did film critics wield increasing power. Their opinions became received wisdom. So much so that their reviews could make or break films and careers, especially those films that were produced outside the studio system. In other words, the very individuals and creations that most required critical attention ended up in the hands and minds of a select few who could then deter or encourage vast swathes of the public to stay away from or flock to any given film. And just as the auteur theory suggested a film was the reflection of a director's personality, critics used their columns as extensions of their aesthetic theories on cinema. Which might prompt us to ask, what was the difference between them and Truffaut? After all, so caustic was Truffaut as a critic that he came to be known as 
the gravedigger of French cinema. However, unlike those critics, the authenticity and legitimacy of Truffaut's opinions can be seen in the fact that he and his colleagues at Cahiers du Cinéma, Claude Chabot, Jean-Luc Godard, Jacques Rivette and Eric Romay, became filmmakers and put their theories into action. I want this picture to be a commentary on modern conditions, stark realism, the problems that confront the average man. But with a little six. A little, but I don't want to stress it. I want this picture to be a document. I want to hold a mirror up to life. I want this to be a picture of dignity, a true canvas of the suffering of humanity. But with a little six. Day for Night doesn't have a social message. Instead, from the very opening sequence, it is an education not only in how films are made, but also how to understand them. It begins with a tracking shot that takes us about a town square as people walk with friends, walk their dogs, wait for a bus, buy newspapers, enjoy cafes, and come and go from the metro station. Then from the staircase emerges a young man in a light grey suit, Jean-Pierre Léo. He walks from right to left along the pavement. We follow him until, in the background, a red sports car attracts the camera's attention. It racks focus onto the convertible as it continues right to left around the square. As it does, it spies an older man in a dark blue suit, Jean-Pierre Amont, coming down a set of steps. This time he is moving from left to right, and the camera decides to follow him as he moves through the plaza. Operating on a zoom lens, the camera focuses in on Aumont. He slows and, seeing something off camera, comes to a stop. Quickly from frame right, Leo appears and slaps him in the face. The shot ends, we realise we are not in a real square, but a movie set, and the film is being shot. Truffaut, playing the director, calls to go again, and although the action is repeated, the way it is filmed is different. And it is in the difference that Truffaut shows us that a different camera move, a different use of lens, is akin to a poet using a different word, or a composer using a different instrument. This time, when we see Leo, he stops and looks, and his look motivates the camera to pan and track left. Which is very interesting, because in that one move, the camera changes its identity from objective witness of the events into offering a quasi-subjective angle that spies and then identifies, as a person of interest, Aumont coming down the set of steps. And so, when Leo and Aumont stop opposite one another on the pavement, there is motivation. There is expectation. There is emotion. All through that one camera move, Truffaut has created suspense. When Truffaut released Day for Night, critical consensus suggested that he had long since peaked, if not really delivered on his youthful promise. And indicative of that was the plot of the film within Day for Night that Truffaut was making. Called Meet Pamela and starring Jacqueline Bisset, Jean-Pierre Léo, Jean-Pierre Aumont and Valentina Cortesi, critics sighed and suggested that the trifling melodrama was the sort of thing Truffaut had been making for several years anyway. But that misses the point. If you were making a movie about making a movie, would you waste a blistering plot for the inner film? Or would you not really bother with intricate details and instead focus on the outer picture? I mean, all you have to do is look at the likes of Sunset Boulevard, Singing in the Rain, The Bad and the Beautiful, and A Star is Born in the 1950s, and continue all the way up to the 1990s with Postcards from the Edge 
the player, Ed Wood, and living in oblivion, to see no filmmaker would bother filling out an inner story the audience don't really care about. Besides, if Truffaut had embedded a truly compelling scenario for the film within the film, he was running the risk of critics and audiences wishing they were watching the inner film instead. Oh, Monty. Come, join me on the divan. It seems Allegra is a no-show, which is simply a bore. But I'll partner you and Bridge. Why the pout? Ha! Would that it were so simple. Although it has its charms, Day for Night is rather a sloppy film. Made you sense with great enthusiasm and even greater haste. Yet it does deliver some salient insights into not just Truffaut's passion for the art, but also the notion of creativity. A crucial scene sees him stressing over the script, worrying that his character's motivations are not clear. Thankfully, he has in the office the script girl, Joelle, played by Natalie By. While Truffaut seems to stall and dither, Joelle sits at the typewriter, explaining a possible answer to the problems. Joelle's character was inspired by Truffaut's lifelong collaborator, Suzanne Schiffman. Schiffman worked on over a dozen of Truffaut's films, and as well as being a writer, director and producer in her own right, her impact on Truffaut's career is echoed in her CV, which shows she also worked with Godard, Rivette and Jacques Demy. Theirs was a relationship to which David Mamet paid homage in his movie within a movie, State in Maine. What's the scene about? I don't know anymore. <clears throat> Annie, have you seen Carla? No. <clears throat> he sees her on the street. He wipes the soot from his eyes. He goes up to her. What happened to the horse? Uh -huh. He, she looks at him. Yeah. She takes his hand. Ah. I hurt you. I hurt your finger. Ah. What happened to his finger? It was burnt. Then it was really hurt. Ah, ah, ah. That's what she says. Just like Fellini's Eight and a Half, Truffaut included dream sequences. But unlike Fellini, Truffaut made sure that the dream sequences were easily identifiable. The scenes don't further the plot, but are positioned to declare how long cinema has possessed him, as well as how deeply it has penetrated his subconscious. It's not just every waking moment that cinema consumes him. It is every heartbeat. In the dream, delivered in black and white, a young boy robs 10 by 8 pictures of Citizen Kane from the lobby of an old cinema. And as we watch the boy reach through the barrier and remove the pins to gather the pictures, a different resonance comes through. He is not stealing them. He is releasing them from behind the bars. He is freeing them, giving them movement, releasing the static images back into life. Finally, back to Truffaut's essay. Since the 1990s, it has delivered a third impact, and it is this one that is likely to be the most meaningful. The essence of his theory is now enshrined in European law. Since the director is regarded as the author or one of the authors of a film, a director is the original copyright holder which impacts in all manner of ways, moral, intellectual, legal and financial. Which means that even if he had never shot a frame of film in his life, 
Francois Truffaut would still be one of the most influential figures in the history of cinema.